0: Section ten of Four American Indians by Edson L. Whitney and Francis M. Perry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 and 8 of the Story of Pontiac. Chapter 7. Hostilities Begun. Bright and early the next morning, hordes of naked savages gathered on the pasture land near the fort. A long quadrangle was marked out on the grass with lines across it. At each end of this gridiron, two tall posts were erected five or six feet apart. This, as you may have guessed, was to prepare for an Indian game of ball. When all was ready, the young men of the Ottawa tribes took their places on one side of the field. Opposite to them were the Potawatommies. Each Indian had a long racket or bat with which he tried to drive the ball to the goal against the opposition of the players of the other nation. Such a yelling as they kept up, running and pushing and plunging and prancing the while. Small wonder that squaws, warriors, and chiefs should have come to watch so exciting a game. Still, the men in the fort kept the gates closed and stayed behind their walls, as if they took no interest in the game. They were really watching with some uneasiness the vast crowd of Indians so close at hand. When the game was finished, Pontiac went to the gate of the fort. His chiefs attended him, and a motley crowd of warriors, squaws, and children came trooping after. The great chief shouted in a loud voice, demanding admission. He received answer that he might come in if he wished, but the rest would have to keep out. With injured dignity, he asked if his followers were not to be allowed to enjoy the smoke of the calumet. The English commander, tired of false speech, gave a short answer, refusing flatly to let the Indians in. Thereupon Pontiac's brow darkened, and he strode off to the river in high dudgeon. The others withdrew a little and stood in groups, muttering and gesticulating. Then, with wild whoops, they bounded off to join their comrades, who lay stretched on the earth around the ball grounds. After a brief parley, some started with blood-curdling yells toward a house across the fields where an englishwoman lived with her children others leaped into their canoes and paddled off to an island where an english farmer lived alone before sunset the men at the fort heard the exultant scalp yell of the indians and knew that the first blood of the war had been shed in the meantime pontiac hastened with gloomy rage to his own village across the river It was deserted by all but a few squaws and old men. These Pontiac ordered to pack the camp luggage and make all ready for removal, as soon as the men came with their canoes to carry the camp equipment to the Detroit side of the river. All labored to do their chief's will, while he went apart and blackened his face. At nightfall, the Braves came in with the scalps they had taken. A pole was driven into the ground in the open space where the tents had been. THE WARRIORS GATHERED ABOUT IT, THEIR BODIES DECKED WITH PAINT AND EAGLE FEATHERS. PONTIAC SPRANG INTO THEIR MIDST, BRANDISHING HIS HATCHET AND STRIKING VIOLENTLY AT THE POLE. AS HE DANCED ABOUT, HE RECITED THE GREAT DEEDS HE AND HIS FATHERS HAD DONE IN WAR. HIS APPALLING CRIES, HIS TERRIBLE WORDS, STIRRED THE HEARTS OF HIS INDIANS AND FIRED THEIR BLOOD. ALL WERE IN A FRENZY OF EXCITEMENT. With wild cries, they joined their chief in his war dance. Even the faint echo of the din these bloodthirsty demons made struck terror into the hearts of the watchers of Detroit. The soldiers kept close guard all night, expecting an attack at any moment. But not till early dawn did the war cry sound. Shrill and near it rose from hundreds of throats. Strong men turned pale at the clamor of yells and cracking rifles it seemed that the Indians must be at the very walls of the fort. The guards on the ramparts, however, could see no enemy in the faint gray light. From behind every tree, every stone, every rise of ground, came the incessant flash of muskets. Bullets and blazing arrows rattled against the palisades. The Indians aimed at the loopholes and succeeded in wounding five of the English. The soldiers returned a cautious fire, unwilling to waste powder on an invisible foe. After an attack of six hours' duration, the Indians, weary with their night's activity, gradually withdrew to their camps, having suffered no loss, but at the same time having inflicted little. Gladwin, whose spirit was manly and humane, wished, if possible, to avoid further bloodshed. The Canadians took no part in the war, and could therefore be safely used as messengers. As soon as the battle had subsided, Major Gladwin sent a deputation of them to tell Pontiac that he was willing to listen to any real grievance of the Indians, and do his best to redress whatever wrongs they had suffered. Pontiac knew that his chief charge of injustice against the English Their presence in and claims to his lands would not be considered by the English a real grievance. He thought the hour for talking had passed. The time for action had come. Treachery was his readiest weapon, and he used it. He replied that he could consent to no terms unless they were made with the English in person, and asked that Captain Campbell, second in command of the fort, come to a council in his camp. Captain Campbell had no fear, and urged Major Gladwin to permit him to go. He and another Englishman, accordingly, hastened to the Indian village. The women and the warriors were so enraged at the sight of their red coats that they would have stoned them had not Pontiac interfered and led them to his lodge. After a long but fruitless talk around the council fire, the English rose to go. But Pontiac said, "'Brothers, you will sleep tonight on the couches the red men have spread for you.' He then gave orders that his prisoners should be taken to the house of a Canadian, where they should be treated with respect, but closely guarded. Chapter 8 The Two Leaders When the officers at Detroit learned that their deputies were detained by the Indians, they realized that there was no hope for peace. Before the fort, two armed schooners rode at anchor. Most of the officers wished to abandon the fort and seek safety by sailing away on these boats. "'There is no use trying to hold the old fort against eight times our number,' they said impatiently. But Major Gladwin had no thought of surrender. "'We could not,' he answered, if the Indians should attempt to force the walls. But there is no danger of their venturing within gunshot in any numbers.' They won't risk their red skins that way. They'll simply waste their powder and lead in such firing as they did this morning, and pretty soon they'll lose heart and drop off, leaving Pontiac to beg for peace. I don't suppose they will unite in a charge, assented one of the officers, but they will keep a sharp lookout day and night to do us injury. We have four walls to guard and only one hundred and twenty men to do it. The garrison will be exhausted in no time. Yes, we have hard work before us, agreed the commander, but we can do it. Our case is not so bad as you represent. The ship's guns protect two walls, so that virtually only two sides of the fort are exposed to the enemy. To me, the most alarming feature of the siege is short rations. The supplies are low, and we cannot hope for more within three weeks. We'll starve to death, pinned up here with no hunting and no provisions from the Canadian farmers complained some ready in their alarm to magnify every danger by taking care to prevent waste we can make the supplies last the commander interrupted i shall buy up at once everything in the fort that can serve as food put it into a common storehouse and give to each person a daily allowance if even with this care the food runs short canadians may be found who love gold better than indians in this way the courageous leader argued until at last he overcame the fears of his aides and roused in them a spirit of resistance pontiac had no lack of warriors nevertheless he as well as the british leader had his fears and difficulties his own followers were not easily managed he had brought them together from near and far with promise of easy victory over the english After a short struggle, many of the tribes lost heart and were ready to go back to their villages. The Canadians were neutral and were supposed to sympathize with the Indians, but Pontiac knew that many of them favored the English, and were ready at the slightest offense to take the side of his enemies. His campaign against the English had begun with failure. Treachery had failed. He had put the English on their guard and must now use open force. To hold a horde of savages together, to keep the fickle Canadians friendly, to take without cannon all the fortifications on the frontier were the tasks the Indian general had set himself. Pontiac's personal influence over the Indians was unparalleled. He had lost none of his power over them by the defeat of his plan to take Detroit. No Indian dared reproach him with failure. All quailed before his terrible rage and disappointment. They brought him the scalps of the English they had slain. They sought to please him with loud outcries against the English, and promises of the bloody work they would do. He held all in awe of him. He commanded as if sure of being obeyed, and punished the slightest disobedience with extreme severity. But he did not govern by fear alone. He took care that his warriors should not want for food. He took care to give them grounds for hope and to keep them busy. No preparations had been made for a long siege. When provisions failed and the tribes were on the point of leaving, Pontiac had a conference with some Canadians and arranged that they should furnish his people with corn and meat. He had no money to pay for provisions, but he made out notes promising to pay for them at some future time. These notes were written on birch bark and signed with the figure of an otter, the totem of the great chief. Many of the farmers feared they would never see the money promised them in these notes, but Pontiac paid them all faithfully. Pontiac knew how wasteful his people were, feasting in the day of plenty without thought of the morrow. He therefore employed a Canadian as his provision officer. This man had charge of the storehouse, and doled out each morning the provisions for the day. This novel arrangement increased the Indians' confidence in their leader, yet some grew restless and were on the point of giving up the struggle as a failure. On learning this, Pontiac sent out messengers to the Wyandotte Indians, ordering them to join him in his war against the British or prepare to be wiped off the face of the earth. By this stroke, Pontiac turned threatened loss into gain. The support of the warlike Wyandots renewed the courage of the faint hearted, and for a time all thought of failure ceased. The chief's conduct toward the Canadians was highly praiseworthy. They had encouraged him to make war against the British by promising that the French king would send him help. Week after week passed, and no help came. Pontiac's expectation of the arrival of a French army grew fainter and fainter. Still, he did not lose faith in the truth of the Canadians. He protected them and their property from injury and theft, for there were many lawless young warriors who were ready to do violence to the French as well as to the English. While pretending to sympathize with the Indians, many of the French farmers were secretly helping the English by selling them food and reporting the movements of the Indians. Pontiac heard many reports of their faithlessness— One stormy evening the chief entered the cabin of a Frenchman, whom he had known for many years. With only a nod for his host, he sat down before the dying fire. He sat there wrapped in his blanket for a long time without a word. At last he faced the Frenchman and said, Old friend, I hear that the English have offered to give you a bushel of silver if you will take them my scalp. It is false, cried the Frenchman in alarm. I WOULD NOT INJURE MY FRIEND FOR SO MANY BUSHELS OF SILVER. PONTIAC HAS NO FEAR. PONTIAC trusts HIS BROTHER, THE INDIAN REPLIED, AND STRETCHING HIMSELF UPON A BENCH, HE WAS SOON SOUND ASLEEP. THE FRENCHMAN COULD NOT BE FALSE TO SUCH FAITH, AND THE CHIEF SLEPT UNHARMED. WHILE SUCCESSFULLY KEEPING TOGETHER HIS WARRIORS, AND STRENGTHENING THE BOND OF FRIENDSHIP BETWEEN THE FRENCH AND THE INDIANS, Pontiac was carrying on the war against the English with vigor. His camp near Detroit was the center of action. From it, Pontiac directed the war and kept constant watch over the garrison. He prevented the besieged from leaving their walls. He sent out parties to waylay the supplies the British were expecting from the East. He planned and managed expeditions against other forts held by the British. End of Section 10